The promise of software-defined networking has been a long time coming. Seven years ago or so, SDN, it was going to change everything, right? CCIEs wouldn't be needed anymore, blah, blah. Remember that? All right, 2021 reality. SDN hasn't transformed everything we do in networking, but that doesn't mean SDN has gone away. SDN manifests itself in lots of ways throughout the networking ecosystem. One of those ways is analysis paired with recommendations. A platform will observe the network and not just show you pretty graphs because we've had that forever, right? The platform will also tell you how to fix a problem or improve the situation. And often you can click a button for the platform to put those recommendations into action. And maybe that's not the SDN you were thinking of if you remember conversations from years past on this topic, but it is one form of SDN that we very definitely have today. Our heavy networking sponsor is Cisco. And we're gonna dive into some examples of this kind of SDN that brings the cloud, because of course it does, management plane disaggregation, deep metadata analysis of BGP, prefixes and flow, change recommendations and automation all together. One example of how Cisco is delivering this is crosswork cloud traffic analysis. And we're gonna get into that example as the podcast develops, but this is a tool that is available to make you deeply knowledgeable about your BGP peering relationships. Well, we'll talk about more of that as the show goes on. Joining us from Cisco is Omar Sultan and Dan Backman. Both of these gentlemen have been guests on the Packet Pushers podcast network before and are up to their necks in network automation products Cisco makes for service providers and enterprises. So before we get into this crosswork cloud traffic analysis thing, we, let's take a let's take a step back here. We want to talk tooling architecture with Cisco first because it's it's right there in the name that uh, this tool crosswork cloud lives in the cloud, and I guess a lot of a lot of tools do, right? So uh, to you guys at Cisco, Dan, let's start with you. Is uh, is managing network infrastructure from the cloud just is that just a normal thing now? Is that like yeah, all the management plane stuff lives up in the cloud, and that's cool. It depends on what you mean by managing it. I think you see that there are different scenarios that make sense for different environments. I think what we've seen is in enterprise environments, uh, usually those that tend to be relatively hands-off, very cookie cutter, some that are maybe a little bit less than the mission critical, there's a lot of value in having cloud-based control for those because it allows a level of scale to deploy and manage and also to really standardize what those environments look like. Uh, in our world on the service provider side, that question gets a lot stickier because when you're talking about controlling mission critical networks, understanding where management plane is, what role it has and sort of which of the applications are directly in control of forwarding versus those that are really designed to support operations. That's really where the breakpoint happens. And I think what we're seeing is that as we start looking at management and plane and cloud, it's really a question of asking which portion of the automation journey are you in? Is it sort of direct control? Is it a tight closed loop system? Is it something that's interacting directly with control plane? Or is it something that's more at a policy layer or an analytics layer where scale and usually geographic uh, distribution is one of the bigger headaches. Those are some of the things that we see on the SP side that make this kind of more interesting question. And, and there's, a, there's a big distinction we need to make here to help frame this part of the conversation. So we're talking management plane, um, but control plane and management plane kind of bleed together in people's minds. Can we differentiate, Dan, from your perspective, what we mean by management plane in the cloud versus control plane in the cloud? Because we actually have both of those things, depending on what we're talking about. Oh boy! Well, it gets it gets much more uh, it gets much more interesting, especially in the world of SDN. I think 
just as a traditional networking person, I always think of control plane as the actual protocols that run between individual network elements. And that's something that you always want local to those devices. So something like an ISIS, OSPF, BGP, something that's actually maintaining state between an individual routers, that's clearly something that you would want to run in the router themselves. What you then have is the question is more about management plane. That's where you're affecting policy, things like services, and you're reflecting, for instance, policies of even potentially pads. This is what's getting even more interesting in the SDN world. The simple answer is you can have some things that are much more abstract where you're sending down changes, things like provisioning makes a lot of sense uh, a little further away from these questions, uh, from these uh, elements. But there's a whole new set of applications that are really halfway in between. Like, what do you call a an SR controller? If you have an SR PCE that's maintaining state for individual topologies and affecting policies and doing calculations, that's now something that you probably want relatively close to the elements, but there's also separate policy layers that you can start to decouple. So I think the real answer to your question is these new architectures have made it almost more of a spectrum, anywhere from sort of abstract services and provisioning, which are tend to be far away, to real control plane on the routers, which tend to be very close. And there's opportunities to look at positioning each one of these components in these new architectures. Well, let's so, look at segment routing and, and PCE then for a second here, um, since you brought that up as an example, because it, it is an interesting one, right? There's no state that lives in the network there. That state as such is calculated by PCE and then pushed down into uh, some network device, some network element that's going to, if it's MPLS, it's going to uh, push a label stack onto a packet as it um, heads into the core network. Does the network so so what is the issue then, Dan, if we were to try to put a real fine point on it? If that happens in the cloud somewhere far away, latency-wise, it's far away from the core network. And are we concerned about those devices being, those elements being separated from one another, where what's happening in the cloud is um, distant in some way from what's happening down in the core? You hit the nail on the head, it's distance. So when you're looking at cloud, especially controlling something on-premises, you always want to think about the distance involved. So if you're, so for instance, with SR, it's not just that you're pushing uh, pushing forwarding state down to the devices. There's also additional components that are that can also now start to contribute additional information back to the topology. Typically, a PCE is going to have a BGPLS speed, so you can start to see topology. That's something that you would want to reflect relatively quickly and closely to those devices. Likewise, as you start to get uh, additional things like um, service assurance, uh, SRPM type uh, performance management probing, all of these things start to send data back to that system. So if you want to take action quickly, think of what we've already done for uh, for local repair. If you want something to happen quickly, you try to sync it as close to the hardware as possible. If you want to do something at scale, you can go further away. So I think it, what you'll start to see is each one of these elements, you can start to have different layers of action at different distances from the hardware. And that's where we really start to separate out some of these thoughts about where you would deploy each one of these components, where you would want to take action, and where you can take advantage of cloud scale for each one. So I think the the flip side here is the, the fact that SDN used to be about programming paths instead of using routing protocols and trying to configure the parameters around autonomous routing pros to configure paths to using SDN. But what we've now also seen with the software defined and the growth of applications on the software defined is that path programming is assumed and we're seeing a diversity of applications come forward in the software. So analytics, 
you know, collecting data from the network in the form of flow capture or telemetry from the devices to build a model, which we can then abstract away from the architecture. Does, and then what we've probably started to realize is that telcos in the architecture level are starting to realize that the value is not so much in the forwarding plane, but in that's what the vendors do. What the telco has to do is do the, do the best it can with this software so that it knows what's happening in the network and finding the right paths through the network and providing um, better utilization of the bandwidth in the networks that they operate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good distinction, right? When, you, when we mm -hmm. talk about what we're trying to get to with automation in, in terms of there's the mechanics of things like path computation, those kind of things, but then there's kind of, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. um, at the end, and that's what you talk about, you know, we're trying to deliver a service to a subscriber, we're trying to get a provision, we're trying to maintain assurance, um, those kinds of things. And, I, you know, I, I think when you look at tooling, you end up needing to deconstruct it a little bit and say, okay, what are we trying to accomplish and where's the best place for it to happen? And some of it, you know, we should do, you know, it makes sense in the cloud or it's better doing the cloud. Some of these things need to uh, probably stay on, on with on-prem tooling and, you know, some stuff in, you know, in the middle can go either way. Mm. We, mm, Omar, I want some examples here of why, where this is better in the cloud, because I've been, I've been thinking about this as we've been talking it through. And to me, almost mm -hmm. everything is de-risked if it is all on-premises. That is, if I keep my management plane close to my control plane and to those elements, I can react to a change in network topology more quickly and more assuredly because of that distance, I've eliminated it. So give me an example of where it actually does make sense to put some of this up in the cloud. So and probably a better question for Dan because he has actual examples, but I, th I think in general, yeah, you're right. I mean, certain things, config management, those kinds of things, yes, closer to the box makes more sense. But on-premises starts to lose some meaning when you look at a complete end-to-end -end service chain, which may hopscotch across some cloud, you know, uh, mm. you know, some cloud data centers, uh, a service provider's own data center, maybe some edge provider, there's no longer a premises anymore. Um, and you need holistic end-to-end -end view. So, uh, you know, that certainly one of the things that you can do in the cloud is have end-to-end -end perspective and look at more than, um, you know, one localized, uh, you know, set of data. So maybe one way to think about this is actually the real question, I think for service providers is, we, it's easy to technically focus on the question of distance. I mean, that's really more of an engineering challenge. That's more of deciding where does it make sense for this application to live. But I think for a lot of service providers, the real question is maintaining control. Hmm. And what are the things that they absolutely need to maintain control of so that they can guarantee the operation and uptime of their network? And where are the applications where they're starting to run into challenges in terms of scale? for managing these applications and managing the complexity of some of the new applications that are required. This is where we're starting to see the breakpoint. I think if we're, if we're focusing narrowly on things like SR controllers, a knee-jerk reaction is that's something that the service provider would actually wanna absolutely keep control of. Yeah. The service provider is responsible for the operation of that network. If you're responsible for programming a FIB state and a router, that's something that you as an SP have as sort of your core business, and you need to provide guarantees to make that available. So what you're going to look at is how do I deploy that at the best scale and the best location? And I think that's flexible, whether it's an internal data center, what we're starting to see now is service providers are also starting to work with some of the cloud infrastructure providers to extend the concept of what 
internal infrastructure really means? Does that management network now extend over a direct connect into even a localized data center? Those are all questions there. But there's another set of applications where they're not as tightly coupled to running the network themselves, but in many cases, they're providing critical information on the network. And those are the ones that tend to really have a lot more problems on scale and complexity. If If we look at cloud as a spectrum, the knee-jerk reaction on cloud is how do we just move existing applications? Nothing in this is this is as network engineers, we know nothing is new. Every problem yeah. that we see here, we've seen for 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing as, as service providers are looking at adopting more and more cloud products and, and more cloud uh, deployments, we can pull from a lot of learning that we've had in the industry. So some applications, there's an obvious answer to sort of lift and shift. And I think you're seeing that from some service providers, but that doesn't mean the applications are any different. If you have an SRPCE, that is something that's usually going to be relatively closely co-located to a set of routers. Um, if you have sort of policy controllers, that's it's going to be relatively tightly coupled to that. But there's, and especially things like configuration management systems, these are becoming sort of tightly coupled operational systems. Mm. But there's other applications that solve very real headaches that service providers still have. And this is one of the things that we see as a really big opportunity to explore a different type of cloud, which is not lifting and shifting existing applications. It's actually reimagining these applications as software as a service. And that, that is absolutely what cloud has been about. If you lift, you know, we that's the common story, lift and shifting into the cloud won't get you a benefit, but it gets you closer to the cloud. So that maybe a lift and shift is the best that you can do to start is what some people say. I think the best part about lifting and shifting into the cloud is it highlights how badly your current infrastructure is. And then you start to rethink and reimagine. So mm-hmm. making mistakes is usually the only way forward in technology. And I suspect many companies will go and do something in the cloud, but then have the ability to unwind and say, right, we can repatriate and get it, get a better infrastructure in place. Not a perfect infrastructure, just a better infrastructure. Get the applications <laughs> right, you know, things like that. The challenge here is, you know, things that we talk about in the cloud, like systems require constant updates. Systems rely, get, you know, have to store vast amounts of data. That sounds like a hard problem, but it's actually not. These are infrastructure problems that are easily solved, but you have to do away with how you used to look at it. You don't want to store it on block storage arrays. You need to store it in an object array. And an object array is infinitely scalable. But most existing infrastructure providers can't store petabytes of data because they can't imagine not having a storage array that doesn't involve a physical chassis with a bunch of uh, spindles and spinning rust, right? They have to come away with a different thought about it. So in that sense, it is interesting that cloud can be a way it becomes that transformation, like move it into the cloud, realize what you've messed up and then make a point to come back with. Are you okay with that as a vision? Do you think that cloud providers will use the cloud, learn some lessons and then pick the best? Sometimes there's a place for on-premise cloud and sometimes there's a place for on-premise cloud. I think that's absolutely going to happen, but I think we're going to see two different trajectories here for different types of applications. So if you look at the traditional SP operations, think of the headaches that a carrier has just in running their internal systems. I mean, every carrier is forced to be basically their own internal application 
integrators and application service providers. And it uh, and that covers the gamut from everything from OSS and BS systems, BSS systems. Now we're adding a whole slew mm-hmm. of new capabilities in terms of more SDN oriented control planes, more intent based networking architectures that deliver some very real value in terms of how you can actually push that intent and validate the intent and validate services. All of those become new applications that they run. And some of these make a lot of sense in terms of just reevaluating physically how they're deployed and where. The other question, though, is where are the places where a service provider may not want to be that application service provider anymore? And that's where cloud software as a service comes in. See, this is difficult from the point of view that you just stated that telcos need to be doing their own internal development. But that's also true of any enterprise in 2021. They've all got to have their own. And that's what DevOps is, is the recognition that it to operate any sort of computing infrastructure, any sort of technology, any sort of cyber, you need to be gluing it together. It almost goes back to the old days of systems administrators administration. The, whether you're doing it in the cloud or whether you're doing it on-prem, is really just an argument about whether you're buying a BMW uh, petrol-powered car or a Tesla electric car. One may be better than the other, but at the end of the day, BMW will have electric cars that are going to be just as good as Tesla in a few years. It's not really a decision, right? That would be my point. I think cloud is much more of a mode of operation. It involves DevOps and system administration and a new way of approaching. And I think that's where Cisco Crosswork comes in. Um, so I'm going to disagree with you a, a little bit, and I'll disagree right. with you on the car thing. That's that's a different conversation with beers. Um, so, so I think there are two pieces to this. The first is okay, we're going to move stuff to the cloud, and I think that ends up being a deployment flexibility thing. You talked about lift and shift of tools and and, and those kinds of things. And the, the first thing you get is okay, this is much more you know easier to deploy uh, just by moving it to there. But I think there's a second piece to that, which is okay, we're building things in cloud that are not possible with on-prem tools. So, you know, things that are designed to be in cloud and really take advantage of cloud, you know, cloud-centric architectures and starting to build out a set of tools that are not replicatable or not doable um, with on-prem tooling. And I think that's an important distinction between those, you know, between those kinds of things and what you're looking to accomplish or what you're buying. Okay, so Omar, so you just said, I can't, I, I, it can be built in cloud. It couldn't be built on-prem with uh, on-prem tooling, plus it's being bundled up as SaaS, which means me as the consumer of said tool, I'm just spinning this thing up and running it, which gives me a, I don't know, we could call it a time to market advantage. We could just, just making my life easier sort of thing, right? I'll, I'll use NSO as an example, because I can talk about it. You know, it runs on-prem most places. You know, do we have customers that run containerized NSO? Yeah, in the cloud? Absolutely. They, they do it in production. But what they've gained is deployment flexibility. They, you know, they're not necessarily leveraging the things that cloud or cloud native do, do well in that point, right? They've kind of just, you know, maintained their operation, you know, all their operational skills and processes and SOPs that they picked up and they found, okay, this is easier to spin up and easier to deploy. Uh, I think that the step from, and I'm glad customers are doing that, but I think at some point, you know, we need to, uh, you know, as a team, we need to come up with a thing that is designed to truly leverage cloud as opposed to just running on cloud. When you, you know, look at mobile apps, you know, the first thing, you, you know, when first thing, you know, way back when, you know, mobile apps were just, you know, the, the, the desktop version running on a phone. And then we finally started to get apps that really built and took advantage of, of, the, of the phone environment and the ability that we have all these different capabilities uh, in a single phone, in a single platform integrated. 
and we can start doing things uh, on a phone. I mean, things like the Uber app, for example, is something you could do on a phone. You cannot do, you know, running on your desktop. So are you getting at more the deployment model where if I'm going cloud native, I've got APIs I can call, I can add my app deployment into some kind of an automated chain with testing and then deploy it? Are you talking about what this application is, has been constructed in such a way that it's using some mix of probably uh, PaaS services stitched together in such a way that it's now I'm leaning into what the cloud, the public cloud provider in question is providing me to come up with an app that's been built on that, as opposed to kind of what the, more the lift and shift model we were alluding to earlier. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as you make the transition, there's, you know, certain things become friction-free, well, lower friction in the, in the cloud than they are if you're trying to stitch together a bunch of, you know, proprietary on, on-prem tools. So. You know things like being able to ingest data and 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 from different sources and those kind of things certainly become easier. Um, you know, certainly become easier in, in a cloud environment where you're building a bunch of apps that are designed to run in the run in the cloud and talk to other apps that are designed to run in the, that were designed to run in the cloud. And let's let's actually take a step back because I think there's a, there's a really important question and distinction here. With when we talk about cloud, when we talk about where apps run, are they cloud native, software as a service, there's actually three simple questions that all of these are talking about. I think this gets to the business problem of how each one of these is addressed and where each one makes sense. The first one is who's responsible for the software? Who builds and makes the software? Is is there a vendor? Is there an ISV who builds and maintains the software who comes out with new updates and and new deployments? That's what we've been used to dealing with in sort of traditional software model. We ship version one of software, we ship version two, customer gets it, they deploy it. The next question is who is responsible for operating that service? And this is where this starts to become sticky. So if you have software that is built and deployed and built and and shipped by a vendor, but operated by a customer, now the customer has a choice about where they put it. And this is sort of the traditional, do I put it in my own data center? Do I start moving this to new options in IaaS where now it can be physically closed or directly connected to my management network? That's a way of sort of solving the infrastructure burden, but they're still running that software and it's still sort of treated as packaged software. The third one is sort of a, is a next step, which is where you start to get service where the customer themselves becomes sort of a more complex operator. And this is where you would potentially start to bite off your own operations teams. So you're talking about sort of operating your own continuous deployment pipeline. That's very different from spinning up an AMI in mm-hmm. AWS, right? Mm-hmm. So that means you have a bunch of SREs, you're responsible for that deployment pipeline, you're maintaining individual services, and you're kind of taking on the role of a mini cloud application service provider on your own. It's just that your customer is yourself, basically. And that's honestly the same model that we find in a lot of large cloud providers with one minor exception, which is those cloud providers also change the first piece, which is who actually maintains the software. Mm-hmm. You start to get into a really interesting question when you start looking at the real benefit of sort of what a continuous delivery model is, where the developers who write the app sit right next to the people who run it. And breaking down that barrier is probably the biggest thing that we've seen in terms of really helping to solve a lot of the operational burden. Like what makes somebody mm-hmm. like uh, like a Google or a Facebook or a, or a cloud-based provider different. The whole concept of who runs the software and who builds the software is fungible. It's it's all the same people. They sit next to each other. 
And then the customers are not actually in the, in the business of operating the software at all. They're users. And that's sort of the true SaaS model. So if, if we take a step back, we're going through the same evolution on network, uh, on network automation software as well. We have on-prem applications. You buy the software, you as a customer are responsible for deploying and running it. You can choose where you deploy and run that, but there's still a vendor who's shipping the software. We can also ship vendor-based software that is more flexible. You can run it in new environments like containerized environments where you can start to orchestrate those and start making that fit into a larger PaaS system. But then there's a whole other model where maybe there are some applications where you, you, especially as a service provider, may not actually want to be in the business of operating it at all. Hmm. And, and that's when we're talking about true SaaS, that's about reimagining how we can deliver these apps. So if you're a, and just to bring this full circle, we're talking about things like if we're talking about sort of closed loop SDN controllers, if I'm a service provider, that's really core to my business. If I'm, if I'm delivery, if I'm running a controller that's pushing forwarding state to my routers, I need to be in control of that. But there's other applications where maybe I'm receiving NetFlow traffic. And I want to be able to visualize that and create actionable recommendations on that. Well, that's a read-only system. It adds a lot of value to the ops, but maybe I, as a service provider, don't want to be in the business of actually operating that software. If I, I can, cons- I, I really don't, Dan. <laughs> see, okay, so you, you, I've been waving my arms around here silently. You can't see this because we're not on video. I don't want to be in the business of undifferentiated heavy lifting. If there is nothing added, there's no... Uh, compliance or regulatory concern that's being met by me operating it when there's no uh, um, network distance problem I need to solve by operating it myself. I don't want to operate it. Please just give me the tool that gives me the data, allow me to configure it and not have to think about uh, standing it up myself and maintaining the servers and dealing with storage and and putting all of the uh, RBAC controls in place. If as much of that can be pushed off to someone else as possible and I can pay a reasonable fee to have that done for me so that I don't have to worry about it, that is where I would like to get. Again, with the big asterisk, the caveat that sometimes you really do need to manage it yourself. But again, if it's undifferentiated heavy lifting, I don't want to own that anymore. I'm tired of building servers that do the thing and I got to spend the rest of my life babysitting the server. Rant over. Um, I think <laughs> I think there's a future here we're trying to get to, right? Uh, so, so maybe we can drill into some examples, uh, Dan and Omar, about what network management from the cloud begins to look like over the next two or three years. That's an excellent point, Ethan. So let's actually look at what makes a good cloud. And let's actually call this cloud software as a service. Let's differentiate this because I think it's it's probably fair to say that the industry probably hasn't made this easy for our customers to disambiguate easier just based on the number of conversations that we have here. Um, There are some applications that actually make a lot of sense to consume completely as a service. Let's start with a simple example. Remember the first time you used Google Docs? We're using it here today. And I mean, I've spent time at startups where we're 100% Google Docs, and it was actually sort of hard to go back because it's a different kind of application. You get to use the application. It's always there. You don't have to install anything. That's sort of the basics. But they reimagined it, and they basically said, well, this is an application where now it's really focused on sharing, and there's sort of a new operational model to using it. That's an example of an app that made a lot of sense to do in cloud, but also reimagining it in cloud allowed you to do new and interesting things with the app. Same thing is true for a lot of applications that service providers run to operate their networks. And not all of them are as sexy as SDN controllers, but a lot of them have 
a lot of solutions for a lot of headaches. And we believe that there's a whole suite of applications where it really makes sense to take that burden away from the customer and actually help run it themselves, but also reimagine it in a way that it's actually becoming more valuable as cloud. Okay, you and you and Omar have both made this point, Dan, about there's things we can do in cloud that we can't do on premises, which it just sounds like you're it's very hand wavy. Can we get into some examples of what that means? Because my instinct is there isn't anything I can do in cloud that I can't do on premises if I build the application right, with one exception that pops to my mind of things like anonymized data aggregation from multiple customers where maybe you get data insights you wouldn't otherwise get and things like that. But, but maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. Can you begin to help to give us some specifics? You hit the nail on the head. So there are some applications where you get basically a network effect from having them in the cloud. Now, this is something that does vary based on the app. So some apps, it actually makes a whole lot of sense just on technical reasons alone. And usually there, it's a question about sort of scale, managing the complexity, sometimes cost. There's other applications where you're relying on data that isn't just in your own environment. Here's a great example. Um, if you wanted to start baselining and understanding the behavior of devices in your network, let's say maybe you're going to ask a question, you know, how many forwarding table entries in a device is healthy? Well, you could try to collect all that data yourself, and then you could start building your own systems that create time series on this, do a whole lot of data analytics on it. And you can try to get the answer of, in my environment, I tend to find that these devices with this scale are generally healthy. But that's information only from your environment. If you have the ability to aggregate something like that with information from other people's environments as well, but in an anonymous way, now you know that, well, maybe a more valuable thing is to say, if I have a million forwarding table entries and I'm consuming 950,000 of them, I am in the top 0.05% of customers with that many forwarding table entries. That's a simple example of data that exists outside of your network that becomes really actionable. And that's, that's a very specific example. Others are really based on sort of external data sets. Uh, one of the places mm -hmm. we started in Crosswork Cloud is to actually start reporting on external BGP tables. If we can track looking glasses around the world and give you views in near real time on what those tables look like, we're aggregating all that information at scale in cloud and providing it to you so you don't have to build the infrastructure to do that yourself. Those are a couple simple examples of where it's the data that actually makes more sense in terms of how we deliver these applications and the value of the insights that we can offer even just based on that data. And that's just sort of the data-driven side. There's also a whole bunch of operational, uh, operational discussions that we can have about scale, cost, and complexity as well. Mm. Well, Dan, since we're getting into some specifics, I think this is a good time to actually talk about Crosswork Cloud, So, because it's come up a few times, what that is. But just mention what Crosswork Cloud is. It's, people might think it's a, a, a single product, but it isn't. It's actually a brand, right? Correct. And it's actually, it's actually an infrastructure. Um, so Crosswork Cloud is a suite of products that Cisco operates for service providers as a software as a service. Um, and we in inside of this infrastructure, this is uh, if you look at sort of the overall uh, the overall view of what can we do in terms of cloud, these are full cloud SaaS offerings. So everything in terms of Crossword Cloud is software that is built, maintained, and operated by Cisco. And you as a user can instantly subscribe and get access to these services and get instant value from these services without having to deploy and maintain a lot of on-premises software. And we've really focused this product primarily on operational intelligence. 
We focus this on apps that we think make a lot of sense to deliver in this as a service model for network operators, because this really focuses primarily on how do we how do we help make actionable and usable recommendations and information based on the data that we are able to report on from cloud? And how do we feedback that into carriers operational tooling? How do we build uh, how do we build in automation workflows based on the uh, on the recommendations and actions we have uh, from the from the data that we observe. Yeah, that that is the context here. It's not that interesting just to host an application on the cloud versus me hosting it on premises. Uh, as a service provider, I want more insights. Crosswork Cloud is able to give me more data than I if I was just running this software against my own infrastructure. There's global data feeds and other things that you're able to give me. Is the point you're making here? Precisely, and and just for specific examples. So the first application that we shipped in in uh, in Crosswork Cloud is a external BGP monitoring tool. What this does, it's called Network Insights, um, and one of the things that we maintain as part of that service is a network of global BGP listeners looking glasses around the world, and we are able to consistently monitor individual B uh, BGP prefixes. We can monitor your prefixes as they're advertised around the global tables, and then provide monitoring and actionable updates and, and rich data sets in terms of how these, how these BGP advertisements are propagating through the tables, where we see major changes, and provide direct notification to you so that if you start to see changes in the advertisements, things like if your prefixes start being seen as withdrawn across a large number of peers around the world, that's clearly indicative of either an issue with uh, with the advertisement or potentially upstream policy. If we see major changes in AS path or especially changes in AS path and one prefix in something that's advertised uh, for many from your AS, that can sometimes be an indication of even potential malicious events like uh, like BGP hijack attempts, we can go ahead and automatically provide this continuous monitoring and visibility and the ability to not only alert, alert and alarm, but also directly notify you and build this into your automation suite. And, and these are some of the examples of, of how we can actually start to leverage this, uh, this cloud model, which is really dependent on how do we combine this data from the rest of the outside of the network with data on your premises to really add a lot of value for these operations. So drill, drilling into what I could do to take action if there was a BGP hijack, for example, you can detect it, you can see it. Alerting me is nice, but there's a lot of tools that could do that. You you said the magic words there, that this can find this information out, this condition is happening, and then hook into automation to do something about it. So what does that look like exactly? So it's a couple of things. So the first thing you would want to do is have the ability to continuously monitor this. And there are some tools that, out, that are out there, but we find that more often than not, the reason this is a really valuable automation tool is this is one of the processes, even in surprisingly large service providers, that's still highly manual. There's not a lot of tools that are actually continuously monitoring this that provide a lot of actionable information on this. So not only do you want to be alerted to these changes? You also need to understand what is normal and how you can baseline these changes and set policies and understand what is what do your advertisements normally look like? Where do you care about how these propagate? Where do you see major changes in these? Um, and then when you see these changes, how do we automatically trigger alarms inside the system? And this is something that we can make available in a UI through cloud, something that we can make available directly through API access. You can integrate this as a data provider for the rest of your systems. And then 
And finally, when we do see these alarms trip, where we do see changes in these tables, we can provide proactive notification. There's multiple channels, everything from sort of traditional email SMS to things like integration with SIEM systems and even things like webhooks for chat ops integration. So really, there's information that flows both ways. On the one hand, it's it's notifications and alerting and all that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, I can reach into, you call this network insights component here. I can reach into that, hit the API and be pulling down data on uh, you know, however often I want to check it. And then I'll know things based on whatever I've gotten back. And I can take action from that as it's not like network insights is going to reach in and do things, but I can pull network insights as an information repository, a source of truth, if you will, and act from there. Absolutely. And we see that automation goes both ways here. One of the main things that we want to provide is sort of this critical ongoing monitoring function, and that can get integrated with external with the existing internal system. So for instance, let's say you're managing your peering. How do we automatically add new prefixes that you're advertising? Let's say you're monitoring customer networks. When you're changing your BGP policies, can you automatically push changes to network insights so that we're, you're automatically starting to monitor new prefixes as they're advertised at your border, where that now becomes sort of this closed loop monitoring and alerting system. So it's not only how do we provide alerting back to your systems, but also how do we start integrating this on the front end? So this just becomes an ongoing part of your operational uh, operational environment. In terms but if of I automate these. that, Dan, what's Bob the young intern going to do? He's got to go through and audit everything, <laughs> make sure all the policies are right. Come on, man. You, yeah. So Dan, another one here, you mentioned network insights. Another component here is traffic analysis. And I did some reading up on this in preparation for this podcast. And this one interested me. It's a, it's a flow analyzer, although that's kind of not the point. There's a lot of BGP and prefix focused information that traffic analysis gives me. T talk us through that uh, cloud application. So if we look at the logical next step of where do we go for in operational intelligence and in cloud, the next thing that we saw is if we can start to if we can start to automate the tracking of external routing information, where would we go next? Well, the real use case here is how do we help automate a lot of workflows to manage peering? That's mostly what Crosswork uh, Cloud today is really focused on is peering automation, where if we can start to add traffic information, now you can start to get much more actionable info on where is your traffic going? How do you start to understand why changes in external BGP routing start to affect traffic flows? And how do you merge the context of that with, uh, with actual flows that we see going through your environment? So if you added flow, what that means is uh, it was the ability to start adding NetFlow monitoring for peering routers. We merged that with BGP context. So uh, we would deploy a system where we're not only collecting NetFlow data from your peer routers, we're adding BGP context so we can get a view of exactly what the BGP rib looks like in each one of your peering routers. And then we can start to build a map of where do we see this traffic going into and out of your environment. Think of this as sort of the first step. And that feels a lot like sort of a standard NetFlow tool. That's a that feels a that doesn't feel super differentiated. It's yeah, it's great to get some NetFlow analysis. It's great to start to merge this with external BGP. But where this really gets interesting is to start looking at how do we provide actionable feedback? So one use case that comes to my mind here, Dan, you, you said I can tell as I look at all the traffic transiting my network, well, as traffic analysis, uh, the tool does this, I would know things like, hey, I got a lot of traffic flowing through this point on my network via this peer, which is kind of expensive. And most of it's coming from this other person I don't even have a peering relationship with. If I set up a peering relationship with them directly, 
maybe you can save some money, save some bandwidth, control your traffic better as it flows through the network. Exactly. So that's that's actually one of the key use cases here is how do we start to optimize the peering? The simplest thing we do as we work with customers, the first thing you'll notice when the product is we're automatically building a report of show me all the ASs that you're sending traffic to that aren't directly connected. This is basically what we're calling a peer prospect report. If you're offloading a significant amount of traffic to a remote AS, if you have a large amount of traffic coming in from that AS, how much of that traffic could you move to a dedicated peering relationship or could you potentially even shift? with uh, things like on net caches. That's the first thing you'll start to see. The next piece is as we're expanding the product is really focusing much more on more granular recommendations for balancing traffic across your peers. One of the things that we're seeing as a trend, especially in large providers is increasing the number of peering points around the network. So if you look at sort of the problem of how do you start engineering traffic across these boundaries, that's always been a challenge and quite frankly, a lot of even the largest providers that's still relatively manual. It's what a lot of the network engineers spend a lot of their time looking at it, how they can optimize. Where if we can start tracking traffic to individual destinations across multiple peering points, tracking down to individual interfaces, we can start to provide actionable recommendations in terms of how to better load balance that traffic. And not only to say, this is the amount of traffic you have going to this prefix with this remote AS, but what are some options in terms of influencing that? So if you're influencing inbound traffic flows, maybe we could uh, maybe we could recommend that you start breaking up prefixes into smaller prefixes and advertising it on this interface over here and that other router over there to really balance the traffic that we're seeing going across these peering points. Going back to the point of this being hosted in the cloud, Dan, for traffic analysis, is there a, a, a point in that needing to live up in the cloud or, or the you know extra value that I'm getting there? Because it, it seems like it's focused on analyzing what's coming out of my network, but is there a global component here too? There's a couple. So one of which is we can we can also start to manage this with external data sets. So the first thing you notice is just as you're starting to look at traffic to external ASNs, external prefixes, we're automatically including the information that we have in BGP in the BGP monitoring capability. So network insights is automatically providing context. For this, you can easily see, for instance, if I see traffic going to AS701, who is that? If I see traffic going to AS109, oh, that's Cisco. You can easily start to understand what the context of this is and understand how you would want to influence policy. But there's also a technical component. What we tend to find with a lot of traffic analysis tools is that there are significant challenges both in cost and scale for maintaining these and also expanding these inside of individual networks. By delivering this as a cloud-delivered application, we can really change the model that you consume the traffic and consume the application. So we have a way of deploying this with very minimal on-prem components in a way that's very scale-out and repeatable. So you're but not... Con just hang, hang on a second here, Dan. You're yeah. talking about the fact that with a lot of flow collectors, uh, well, and certainly packet collectors, I need lots of storage and lots of places on the network that I'm monitoring that kind of thing? Exactly. So let's, so there's a couple of examples. So let's actually look at what happens if you're a small provider. If you want to start deploying pretty comprehensive traffic analysis, even at your border, there's a huge step function in terms of what it takes to deploy that functionality. It's not just turning on NetFlow, just as you mentioned, it's deploying large systems. Typically, these are appliances, they require a lot of storage, a fair amount of care and feeding. And likewise, they're very expensive just as an individual starting point. It's, it's very, it's a very big step just to deploy any one of these applications. 
So even for smaller providers, one of the big advantages is we can actually start very small and grow up in a scale up model. So there is definitely an advantage on one side of the market. The other side of the market, even if you're a large provider, adding additional capacity also comes with a very large cost per peering site. So we could deliver this in cloud in a way that we're aggregating that NetFlow information locally, and we're providing a common view through cloud in a way that it's very easy to deploy an on-prem collector that's just a virtual machine. It's easy and repeatable to deploy, and it's very easy to scale up as you add capacity. So as you go from one router to 100 routers, it's very easy to scale up that collection capacity, where you basically now have a linear model in terms of how you can consume all that information and report on it from one location. You take some of the, again, some of that heavy lifting away from the service provider, not having to build out a bunch of effectively internal infrastructure to handle mm. all of the data ingress and processing, you just dump it up to the cloud. Tell you, I tell you what my favorite feature in this is, Ethan, is that this product is run in the cloud by the vendor that sells it. And they have to make it work as they promise, because nobody else is to blame. You can't have it running on your in-house infrastructure and then say, oh, you know, it's Linux or it's the server's not the right size or whatever. You know, and I think it's Dan specifically. We can blame him personally, right? Yeah, well, I'd like to. Well, I think this is a fantastic opportunity for everyone listening. <laughs> but I mean, there, there is value in this cloud hosted infrastructure in the sense that if you want to turn it up, you turn it on and away it goes, right? And the second part is that you're not responsible for the updates and the changes and the ads and moves and patching and all that, which was a major problem with on-premises in, uh, code because uh, generally because of hist historical reasons. That is, applications written 20 years ago used an architecture from 20 years ago. But in this case, when you're in the cloud, you're using modern infrastructure ideas. So it's be contained, it will be using modern message buses, it'll have been rewritten largely from the ground up. There is a real value in, in a, and a moving advantage in reaching time to market, how quickly you could deploy this. If you're a telco and you bite off on this, you don't have to spend two years evaluating it and deploying it on premise, you can actually just turn it up and start using it. And that is a, a key factor in this. Well, Dan, when those comments from Greg, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it wasn't an endorsement, right? But I think we brought <laughs> some points home here that, that, that make the point, getting these services up and running is a fairly uh, straightforward proposition. And it takes some of the undifferentiated heavy lifting out of the equation. So if you were to try to wrap this up with some final thoughts, Dan, uh, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we found as customers work with us, there's a couple things we've really learned from them. First, the ability to deploy this quickly and get very instant visibility of the network is one of the things that's really transformed the experience, especially for some of the smaller providers that we work with. Having access to this level of tools and having the ability to deploy them immediately is something that's really a game changer for them. We can give them visibility where they just didn't have the time or resources or, or internal infrastructure to set it up. But even for the larger customers that we're working with, it's surprising the, the value around, especially this actionable information that we can give them. Peering recommendation sounds like such a simple thing, but what we're hearing from some surprisingly large customers is this is the type of work that's still done on spreadsheets. We're hearing back from customers that just even providing this simple way of saying, hey, your traffic to this AS is unbalanced. We recommend moving it here. And here's some thoughts on what policy we would look like 
we literally had one of the one of the key peering engineers at a large MSO say that's going to save me several hours of calculation. But we'd love we, to have that. We we uh, we we like to call that low code low code uh, automation. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely, thanks, Greg. <laughs> so Dan, if people want to learn more about crosswork and the the, the tool suite and and start thinking through some of these things, where should they head? So Crosswork Cloud is something that's designed so that you can actually go access it directly. It's a service, it's available as a cloud service. You can actually access it as crosswork.cisco.com. That's a landing page. All of our services are available through that. And there's actually a button where you can request a free trial. So you can easily get in and start working with Network Insights where you can start to understand what the external BGP monitoring looks like. And then you can also work with us on expanding that, take the existing account and start looking at what we can do around traffic analysis inside of that same account. So we're, it's something we're really excited about and are definitely looking forward to working with you on. Dan, Omar, thank you very much for chatting with us today on Heavy Networking. And our thanks to Cisco for sponsoring today's episode. Without our sponsors, we cannot do what we do here at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, bringing you IT engineering content from the cutting edge for your professional career development. You can find this and many more of our fine, free technical podcasts, along with our community blog. That's you in the community writing at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers and find us on LinkedIn. You can join us on Slack too, packetpushers.net slash Slack. Read our Slack community rules and then sign up. It is free. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>